the self and uh, uh, the idea of the individual identity, there's a huge problem there, right? And one of the things that happens, not because of romanticism particularly, but in Western thought around the time of romanticism or even uh, earlier later, yeah, earlier actually, because we're talking about Leibniz, Leibniz is before the romantics, he's already talking about the atomic individual, right? There's also a mathematician and uh, there's this fight between who created uh, calculus, did Leibniz do that or did uh, Newton do that, right? And uh, Leibniz is uh, probably one of the contenders, right? So there's whole issue about who created calculus, right? Yeah. Uh, right. Treat your playmates as Hamlet advises Polonius to treat the players according to their own dignity rather than their deserts. If you fly out at everything in them, then you disapprove or think uh, done on purpose to annoy you. You lie constantly at the mercy of the caprice, rudeness or ill nature. You should be more your own master. Right? Yeah. So now the question is, do you get irritated by other people? Right? And one of the most important things is, when you get irritated by other people, you have to think about what is irritating you. Why am I getting irritated? That person doesn't irritate me. I am getting irritated. Yeah? Right? So, when, and that's a sure check to see that we don't, we are not at the mercy of other people. Right? Because whatever irritates us, and if other people know that we are getting irritated, then they can irritate us even more. Right? So that's the idea. Right? So we are very vulnerable to what we get irritated by. Right? So if a cat irritates us or a dog irritates us or birds irritate us or music irritates us, right? And if somebody wants to just add us, right? They can actually do all these things and we can get more irritated, right? And of course, it's also got today, uh, Leibniz is talking about 200 years ago, but today when we're talking about it, it's got something to do with a psychosocial makeup, it's got something to do with trauma, it's got something to do with um, uh, uh, prenatal uh, music and prenatal hurt and all sorts of things uh, we look at today, right? Yeah, all those things were not available at uh, uh, like uh, Hazlitt's time, right? Do not begin to quarrel with the world too soon. For bad as it may be, it is the best we have to live in here, right? So we must not fight with the world, right? We must fight, but we must not fight too soon. That's what he says, right? Yeah, because we have to study the situation and see what we can fight, what we can fight for, right? Otherwise, what we are doing is we're wasting a lot of energy. Yeah, and we have to fight for everything because we are talking about different people arranging the world in different ways, right? So you might arrange it in one way, and I might arrange it in another way, right? I might arrange this room in one way, and you might arrange it in another way, right? And the question is, when it actually comes to who rules the house, right? That becomes important, right? Yeah, and one person says, I want the table here. Another person says, I want the chair here, right? And that's why the whole idea of how do you arrange furniture or rearrange furniture, that becomes an issue, right? So we have enough fights in the world, right? But don't start your fight too soon, right? A fight with the world is important, right? Because otherwise we are not defined. Enemies are important. Otherwise we don't have an individual nature or an individual uh, kind of self, right? Because what I don't like is as important as what I like, right? If railing would make have made it better, it would have been reformed long ago. But as this is not to be hoped for at present, the best way is to slide through it as contentedly and innocently as we may, right? Yeah. So one is to get irritated, the other is to shout at things which we can't help, right? And that's what happens to many people, right? Especially in India, I think that happens much more because we are irrational in many ways, right? Yeah, we like to shout at people and we think that our work gets done because of that, and maybe it does, right? 
Yeah, of course, my friends have a good laugh at me. Uh, in, that's in the old uh, days when we used to go cycling down to theater houses, right? And uh, these guys used to be given a contract to uh, look after the cycle stands, right? Yeah, and very often uh, they were in the wrong, right? And in spite of me giving them the ticket, right? Uh, they would say, ah, ticket again, right? And I would, I would give them a, a mouthful in English and my friends used to have a good laugh, right? So they say, yeah, uh, what's the use of fighting with this guy? That's it, right? The worst fault is that uh, it has is want of charity and calling knave and fool at every turn will not cure this pain, right? I think we discussed this, but anyhow, let's go back to that again, right? If you've seen the movie Sairat, there's this... Uh, this protagonist, uh, what is the name, Archie, right, yeah, and she actually, is, they call a person Langdea, right, and she says, he must be having a name, how do you go and calling him Langdea, how can I call him Langdea, right, yeah, and that's something that is terrible in India, when we use Beauda and Langdea and all those kind of things, and that's what Deepankar Gupta tells us that we shouldn't do, right, and this is something that defines a culture, right, that we don't give a person the, the idea of being a human being in spite of his or her deformities, right? Uh, consider as a matter of vanity that if there were not so many knaves and fools as we find, the wise and honest would not be those rare and shiny characters that they are allowed to be. And as a matter of philosophy that if the world be really incorrigible in this respect, it is a reflection to make one sad not angry. We may laugh or weep at the madness of mankind. We have no right to vilify them for our own sakes or theirs, right? Yeah, so he's saying when we look at the 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 crooks and the fools, right? Yeah, we must be happy that we are they're still rare characters, right? And we are also shining characters as compared to them, right? And of course, if you take Shakespeare seriously, Shakespeare says, uh, Comparisons are odious, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's exactly how we work, right? And uh, misanthropy is not the disgust of the mind at human nature, but with itself, or it is laying its own exaggerated vices and power blocks on the door of others, right? Yeah. So now we've already come to this idea that when we hate human beings, it's also how much we hate ourselves because we are also human beings, right? So when we hate people for something, we have to look into ourselves and see whether that is not within us, right? Yeah, we might hate corruption, right? Yeah, or we might think that people are dumb and stupid, right? As uh, this Hazlitt is saying about his son, okay? Don't look at them as dumb, don't look at them as foolish, don't, uh, yeah, uh, you can just for one while think that you're superior to them, and that's not a good idea at all, right? Uh, do not, however, mistake what I've said here. I would not have you, when you grow up, adopt the low and sordid fashion of palliating existing abuses or of putting the best face upon the worst things, right? Now, don't disguise faults as virtues, right? Yeah, and uh, the question is, in today's world, we don't know where we stand, right? and people don't stand for anything. And that's exactly a, pro a political problem and also a social problem, right? If people stood for things, we wouldn't get the rotten governments that we've got all over the world, right? Yeah, we're getting governments where people don't stand for anything, right? You can buy people up. That's what they think about uh, the, the farmer's value, right? You can buy the people up, right? So that's not what it actually is, right? Because many people can be bought up, some people you can't buy, right? And when you can't buy those people, the only thing to do is exterminate them or kill them off, right? Yeah, so the government is trying all these things today, right? So uh, what is interesting is uh, we might, first of all, get irritated with people, right? And we might also find that, well, we might make ourselves into uh, these people who don't care about what's wrong and he, that's what he's saying be careful about that right because you must be sensitive and caring about other people's wrongs but in your own kind of problem 
you have, you have to be bold and courageous, right? You have to be sensitive if somebody else has a problem, right? Yeah, but if it's your own problem, you have to be strict for yourself, right? So that's something that's very interesting because we're talking about the self and the other, right? Yeah, we have to be kind to all the people all the time, right? And if we are into all that and we notice the fault in ourselves, we have to be very strict with ourselves and write it. Yeah, put it right. Yeah. Uh, yes, I only mean the. Yeah, they seem rather unwilling, willing to reduce it to the theoretical standards. For the rest, the very outcry that is made, if sincere, shows that things cannot be quite so bad as they are represented. Right? The abstract hatred and scorn of vice implies that capacity for virtue. Right? So when we hate vice, it implies that we are people who are made and we have a capacity to be better, right? The impatience expressed at the most striking instances of deformity proves the innate idea of love of beauty in the human mind. Now, he's taking what Deepankar Gupta is talking about, right? When we uh, have a problem with deformity, right? That is, we're talking about beauty and the human mind, right? Of course, many people will say that this is very political, right? Uh, in fact, many people might quote Keats's poem uh, because that's the, a contemporary of Hazlitt, right? And Keats's poem, uh, which says, the first in beauty is the first in might, is actually talking about uh, this kind of colonialism. It's kind of talking about the idea of the superiority of the English people, right? Or the European people. So all that kind of uh, post-colonial criticism is leveled against people who talk about that, right? Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, where am I? Do not themselves, uh, right. So he's saying, when we look at the idea of the human being is, we have to look at beauty, right? And this is a romantic way of looking at things, right? The, what happens is, beauty actually makes us grow towards it. You get that idea in a play by uh, William von... Uh, Wilhelm von Goethe, which is called Faustus, right? Where Faustus goes and goes after the, the, the face of Helen throughout the play, right? Because that's the ideal of beauty, right? Yeah, so the idea of the ideal of beauty is important. And what he's talking of is even more important because when we're talking about romantic art, we are looking at the idea of the ugly, the disgusting, right? Becoming a part of art. That's with the gothic art, right? Yeah, and how does all the disgusting elements of, uh, of course, in Indian aesthetics we have something called bibitsa uh, rasa and all those kind of things, right? Where it's talking about an aesthetic of disgust, right? So you might like to look at that and look at the rasa theory also, yeah. Uh, for the rest, the very outcry that is made shows that things uh, cannot be quite so bad as they are represented. Yeah, we have finished that, right? The best antidote I can recommend to you hereafter against the disinheriting effect of such writings as those of uh, Rockford, Mandeville and others will be to look at the picture of Raphael and Corriego, right? Yeah, you can look at them on the, on the net, yeah? Uh, so you have the act. Okay, now you have a different movement away from art, right? So he's taking us back to the classical artists like Raphael and uh, Correggio, right? Yeah, so you ha look at their art and he's taking us there and over here you have this kind of uh, idealized form of beauty, right? Yeah, and of course by the romantics you have the idea of gothic art, yeah? And the I idea of the ugly becoming beautiful is something else that is there, right? So. This is a trying moment on what you consider is beautiful, right? So, uh, for many people, this is ugly and that's beautiful and very straight, right? We talk about the aesthetics of symmetry, but a lot of people will talk about the aesthetics of asymmetry, right? Yeah, so you get all those kind of things going on. Uh, right, you need not be altogether ashamed, my little dear, uh, dear little boy, or belonging to a species which could produce such faces as those. No despair 
or doing something worthy of a laudable ambition. When you see what, what such hands have wrought, you will perhaps one day have reason to thank me for this advice. Right? Now what is he saying? He is saying there are people who paint a very squadded kind of world. Right? Yeah. Or what do you call morbid world. Right? Yeah. That's my, um, that's the name of my uh, Wi-Fi connection. Morbid. Right? Because I like the morbid. Right? Yeah. But you get, the idea is how do you find beauty in morbidity? Right? So that's one of the issues that you have. And the idea which Hazlitt is talking about is, can you find a balance between the idea of uh, this totally abstract beauty and the idea of uh, depravity? Right? Yeah. So these are the opposites, right? And he's saying, fine. And in art, this is a, a contemporary debate at that point of time, because in art you have uh, this idea of the Gothic becoming an important kind of uh, art in itself, right? The whole idea of the natural, right? The whole idea of, uh, yeah, so that's something that happens, and they try to get the natural into art, and the natural is not perfect. Right? So when you talk about Raphael and all these people, you have this idea of perfection in art. Right? And uh, when we're talking about uh, the Gothic elements, and we're talking about the decadent artists, right? which are different schools of art, right? we're actually talking about different ways of dealing with art. Right? So he's saying, can you find a balance over there? And actually, what is important is, when we're talking about life, we have to find a balance. Right? Yeah, neither too much this side, nor too much this side, and that's the way life is, right? Because if you have too much to one side, or too much to the other side, and that's what Hazlitt is saying, yeah? He's actually talking like a neoclassicalist, right? Which, and they are actually talking about something called uh, the neoclassical golden mean, or the idea of balance, right? So you have that in the plays of the neoclassical period, you have that with Augustine writers in England, Right? So you have this idea of balance, and balance is very important. Right? Uh, as to your studies and school exercises, I wish to learn uh, you to learn Latin, French, and dancing. Right? Now, Latin is uh, a classical language. French is a lingua fran franca of the whole of Europe right? at that point of time. Right? And dancing is again something important. Right? I would insist upon the last more particularly because because both because it is more likely to be neglected and because it is of the greatest consequences to your success in life, right? Yeah, so uh, we're looking at the whole human being and we're not looking at only intellectual achievements or learning a language or learning many languages, right? So one is a classical language, one is a romance language, right? And uh, one is a dead language and one is a living language. If you read G.R.J. G. Tolkien, right? And he's talking about grammar, and uh, somebody, uh, yeah. So one of the one of the uh, Lord of the Rings series is talking about grammar, and grammar is only taught of dead languages, not of living languages, right? Yeah. So Latin, Sanskrit, Greek, these are all dead languages. Of course, you have some modern Greek, right? You don't have any modern Sanskrit, though people write novels in Sanskrit, etc., right? And in Latin also, it's a dead language. They're trying to revive it. The Latin language is used in courts, uh, even in India and many other parts of the world. Right? Uh, I would insist upon, uh, yeah, everything most depends on first impressions. And these depend besides person, which is not an appa, upon two things, dress and address, which everyone may command with proper attention. Right? These are small coin in the intercourse of life which are continually in request and perhaps you'll find at the year's end uh, or towards the close of life that the daily insults, coldness and contempt to which you have been exposed to by a neglect of such superficial recommendations are hardly atoned for by the proofs, new, by the few proofs uh, of esteem and admiration which your integrity or talents have been able to exhort in the course of it. Right? So he's talking about uh, dress and address. Right? So it looks very, uh, it's what we call chiming in um, a, a subject called stylistics. Right? 
you get dress and dress and the, the words chant with each other, right? So that's how he's putting them together and that's a literary kind of way of attracting attention to words, right? So what he's also doing is, when you're talking about dress and how do you address people, okay? And he's talking about the person and he's talking about corporeal, the, uh, the person as a body. We are all bodies, right? And he's talking about the impressions that we create on other people by the dress and the way we present ourselves, right? So that's something else. And he says, some people will know us in a deep manner, what we stood for, what we didn't stand for, right? But many other people will only look at the superfice, the superfice and will only remember us for that, right? When we habitually disrupt, disregard those things, uh, which we know will ensure the favorable opinion of others, uh, it shows we set the opinion at defiance or consider ourselves above it, which no one ever did with impunity, right? So he's actually giving you a very conservative idea. So he's saying dress well, right? Because other people should consider you well, right? So this is a kind of a business strategy, right? So you keep the gates open by uh, uh, using your appearance or your dress so that people deal with you, right? Don't fight with them at the wrong time, yeah? And inattention to our own person implies a disrespect to others. And many may often be traced no less to a want of good nature or than of good sense, right? Yeah, so he says, when we dress, we, okay, when we dress badly, it's not about us, it's about other people, right? Yeah, and he's going back to what Polonius says in his speech to Laertes, right? He's talking about the dress, the apparel of proclaimed the man, and in Paris in 1774 or somewhere there, right, there's a person called Charles of Beaufort who's talking about the same thing, right? Yeah, what he's talking about, the style is the man, right? So the idea of style, style actually speaks for you and uh, what we choose as a style, whether it's a beard or a hairstyle or a dress style or a dress code, right? That actually is supposed to be what we are, right? Some people regard dress as very superficial and external, but some people say that dress is actually showing who you are as a person, right? So he says, people might misunderstand who we are, right? And they might think that we lack a good nature, right? Uh, and not really lack good sense, but lack good nature because we are badly dressed, right? The old maxim, desire of pleasure, and you will be, uh, uh, desire to please, and you will infallibly please, explains the whole matter, right? If there is a tendency of vanity and affectation on this side of the question, there is equally alloy. Uh, there is an equal alloy of pride and obstinacy on the opposite side, right? So he says uh, the maxim is desire to please and you will please, right? Now this is of course questionable to us today, right? Because do we try to do all that all the time, right? When we try to please people, uh, and many people go to all sorts of extents to please people, right? Yeah, and we become very hypocritical, right? And if you try to please everybody, you please nobody, right? We all know that today, right? But he says, when you desire to please, you please, right? So that's one of the things that he's saying. And then, uh, but there's also a question of vanity and affectation. When you look down on dress, you look down on other people, you think that I am superior to them and he's actually wanting his son to feel more equal, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, so it's pride and obstinacy on the, uh, yeah. Slovenliness may at any time be cured by an effort of resolution, but a graceful carriage requires an early habit and in most cases, the aid of the dancing master, right? So he says, if you don't dress properly, you can improve it, right? By resolution, right? You resolve to dress well, right? But he says, if your body is not good enough, 
or you, the way you stand is not good enough is because you that's going to be cured only by a dancing master, right? So dance is something that's very important. Yeah, it's today, in today's world, we say exercise is important. Many people say, well, no, we'll do dancing because dancing implies more complicated kinds of muscle movements, right? So I, I think that's also some something over here. So the idea is dancing is not for pleasure in itself, but dancing is for how do you stand, how do you carry yourself, uh, and what is the kind of poise that you have, right? Yeah? Uh, yeah. Yeah, nothing. One minute. Uh, yeah. I would not have you for not knowing how to enter the room properly stumble on the very threshold of the good graces of those on whom it is possible the fate of your future may depend. Right? Now, that's something that we tell people when we prepare them for interviews. I do that in the IDE too, right? Because I have to teach interview techniques, right? So, when you go for an interview and you strip, and you fall, right? So you have to take take note of your dress. You have to see that your dress is not so such that you uh, get into trouble over there, right? And you lose your balance, right? Or you're very careless when you enter. There's a carpet or there's a uh, a threshold, and you trip on that and you fall down. And what happens to the person? So giving going to interview you for a job or for a degree or whatever that is, right? So that's what he's saying and uh, he's giving him some sound advice over there or not so sound. If you are uh, anti-establishment, uh, we'd say, well, what for, right? Yeah. So you have all these kind of uh, problems today, right? Uh, yeah. Nothing creates a greater prejudice against anyone than awkwardness, right? Now we are talking about stereotypes. And when you have a person who walks in a very funny manner, right? You have people who, who sway themselves around, right? And they stand out from the crowd, right? So that's called awkwardness, right? Because I can't move my hands in a, uh, in a kind of a smooth flow or I can't walk in smoothly, right? That is something that creates a problem. And that's what is called awkwardness. A person who is confused in manner and gesture seem to have done something wrong or as if he were conscious of no one no one qualification to build a confidence in himself upon right now that they're, they're talking about the idea of uh, posture and gesture right which we also talk about in interview techniques and in group discussion techniques right we're talking about your posture should be open okay you should not look as if you're frightened right all those kinds of these are non-verbal signs of communicating something, right? Yeah. So he's talking about that and he says uh, the idea of uh, and many times the way you behave, right? Or the way you walk or the way you talk creates an impression on somebody, right? And you have, of course, rightly or wrongly, uh, some very funny things, right? Like for instance, people will say, don't uh, don't trust this man, he's got shifty eyes, right? Yeah, but you also have the, the, the problem with the straight face liar. Somebody can look at you and tell you lies and you believe them because they're looking straight at you, right? So all those things are, this is a little too simple, right? But it also uh, maybe brings up a little bit of truth because people judge us by the way we walk, right? Our mannerism. Okay, and if you fall down in, uh, in an interview, right, if you try to sit down and you fall off the chair or you don't sit on the chair or your file drops or your certificates get scattered around the floor, right, uh, a lot of confidence is lost, right, because you begin to say, well, I messed it up, right, and unless you're very, very cool and you're very confident in yourself, right, which most of us are not when we're young and that's what he's trying to say. Uh, yeah. Uh, Yes. On the other hand, openness, freedom, self-possession, set others at ease with you by showing that you are on good terms with yourself. Right? Now the question is, if you're cool and calm, okay, in an interview or anywhere else, then it means that you can sit down and talk to people. Right? Yeah? And you might like to see how people behave. No? Right? Like for instance, uh, one day we were having a chat on the road 
and the student is sitting down and uh, there's an old student of mine. I said, why don't you sit down, right? Yeah, he says, no, there's no place to sit, right? I said, well, we are sitting here, so please sit down, right? Yeah, so that shows a kind of ill ease, right? Yeah, so you, if you're not easy with yourself, you're not easy with other people, right? And if you can't be comfortable with yourself, the other person also gets comfortable. This is something that uncomfortable because this is something that people sense, right? So we have these uh, issues that keep taking place again and again, right? Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah, so openness, freedom, self-possession, right? Uh, set others at ease with you by showing you that you are on good terms with yourself. Grace in women gains the affections sooner and secures them longer than anything else, right? So we're talking about gracefulness and that's why dancing is important because dancing teaches you how to be graceful, right? Yeah, of course, he's not come to modern dance where you have break dance and after where the idea is not to be graceful, right? Of course, it has its own kind of grace, but it has all these jerky movements, which is perhaps not talking about at all, right? And if they, and that's exactly the problem, right? The, like when you have uh, dancing to acid rock or dancing to punk rock or something of that sort, right? Many people say, well, we stop at classical rock, right? Yeah, but I remember when I was doing German, and this is more than 25 years, 30 years ago maybe, right? Yeah, uh, many of us could not dance to punk rock and all, which was very new, right? But the director and his wife were, a direct, the language director and his wife, right, were dancing and they could get the rhythm of that kind of music, right? Yeah. So uh, the idea is uh, how do you find a graceful, okay, even though you have jagged music, which is something that we do today, right? Yeah. You have a gracefulness in that, right? So he's saying, uh, and he's talking about women, right? And uh, the idea is, he's not, now this letter doesn't become only to his son, because he's talking to all people, right? So the idea is, it's meant actually for his son, but it becomes a kind of a universal letter, right? Yeah? And it's also that we've taken letters from Gandhi to Tolstoy, and we've taken the letter to the teacher, right? Which is personal, and then it comes public, because it's actually addressing concerns of many more people than are there, right? They are the political letters and that's why Nehru's letters to his chief minister become so important today because uh, he's actually talking about federalism. The, the whole idea of having uh, letters, right, is about federalism, right? Is about talking to people on equal terms, right? And all those kind of things are being dug into and uh, this is why this letter also is important because the letter is actually talking about human beings, right? So he's talking about women and the idea of dancing, giving them grace and how they move and this idea of how you present yourself, what you do in the background and what you do in the foreground, right? Yeah? You do all sorts of things in the background to prepare yourself for an interview, right? You prepare your folder, you prepare your makeup, you prepare your dress, you prepare all these things and you take a, a lot of time, uh, maybe you take one month for uh, a half an hour or a five-minute interview, right? Yeah, and you prepare your folder, you arrange your uh, documents in order. All those things are done, and that takes a lot of time, right? And then after that, you actually uh, sail into the interview. If those things are okay, then your presentation of yourself becomes okay, right? And that's something important because you to show yourself in the best light, right? So that's uh, what he is doing over here. Uh, yeah, grace in woman gains affection sooner and secures them longer than anything else. It is an outward and visible sign of an inward harmony and soul, right? As the want of it in men, as if the mind and body equally hitched in difficulties and were distracted with doubts, is the greatest impediment in the career of gallantry and road to the female heart. Right? Now he's talking about what happens in men, what happens in women, right? So of course it's terrible because it's anti-feminist, right? At one level, yeah, 
though he's talking about men and women, right? He's talking about grace in a woman, and this is supposed to be the ideal kind of woman, and all women are supposed to be graceful, right? Now that's, I don't know what you'd say, because I remember a, a, a colleague of mine, uh, and all the other colleagues used to get very irritated, because she used to wear all these very fancy skirts, which were very frayed, yeah, deliberately frayed, of course, right? And uh, yeah, so uh, the kind of clothes that she wore, they said, well, can, you, uh, can anybody wear all these clothes and come to the office, right? Of course, they didn't have my uh, literature background and the idea of feminism. They were MBA people, right? So they would uh, have these very conservative ideas on how does a person dress, right? Yeah, or if, if people go, if I as a teacher go in short pants to the university, would people have a problem with it or would it not, right? Actually, it shouldn't matter, right? But many people have a problem, right? Many people have a problem with me wearing t-shirts and old students, of course, right? Yeah, so that's something that's very funny, right? Because in my generation, uh, all, that, all those kinds of dresses were to stand against the establishment, right? Today, uh, you don't find students doing that, right? Students are very, very conservative. This has become a very conservative kind of culture that we have, right? Yeah. So, uh, this is something he's doing which maybe is not okay, right? Uh, it's particularly anti-feminist in, in some ways. But then, uh, it also is talking about what the general public wants, right? Yeah. And he's talking, and when he's talking about the idea of how do you present yourself also shows whether you are organized or not organized, right? Yeah, uh, you get that, you get some people who are very, very fidgety, that's the word which is used, right? They can't sit still, right? They'll keep moving about the place, etc. And uh, that's still recognized as something that is either nervousness or discomfort, right? You'll get people who shake their legs in an interview on the stage and that's why we have uh, group discussions and all those things for the IDE course, right? Of course, which you cannot take. Uh, it was a part of our uh, functional uh, English, right? Uh, foundation English, right? But they've uh, shifted all that bit out, right? And that's important because we have to face interviews, we have to have group discussions, right? And now they've made an IDE course of it. So that's a different thing, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, right. Another thing I would caution you against is not to pour over your books till you are bent almost double. A habit you will never be able to get the better of and which you will find of serious ill consequences. A stoop in the shoulders sinks a man in public and in private estimation. You are at present uh, straight enough and you walk with boldness and spirit to do nothing to take away the use of your limbs or the spring and elasticity of your muscles. As to all worldly advantages, it is to the full of as much importance uh, that your deportment should be erect and manly as your actions, right? So the whole idea of manly, manliness, uh, all that kind of machismo, which we call machismo today, right, is something that the letter contains, right? And of course, he's talking about women, he's talking about graceful presentation, right? And he's talking about the exterior shows an interior, which is a theme which we still uh, believe, right? Yeah, and of course, we have to be also suspicious because when we talk about crooks, the crooks are very suave, right? They can uh, talk you into their point of view, right? Yeah, and uh, you don't have any problem with them, right? Many people don't have a problem with them. And uh, of course, that's a technique and an art, right? Where you are uh, a brilliant talker and you can't help falling in love with people who talk very well, right? Yeah, and even if they're selling you ideas which are not quite the ideas that you would want, right? You buy them because of the glib uh, talk, the glib mannerisms, right? And that's why uh, the question is when we fall in love with a, with a character or a person, whether it's public or private, yeah? The question is we need to ask what are we falling in love with, right? This time, yeah, 
and that's not a bad idea, right? Uh, this style also is important, and that's what touches us initially, right? Yeah. So we have to see whether the uh, the kind of style is the reality or not, right? And we're talking about transparency, right? Uh, so uh, the idea is, I tell people this a number of times when you're talking about writing your a letter, right? We're talking about how it's formatted, right? And uh, if your letter is not formatted or your CV is not formatted, right? Then the persons who are reading it might think ill of you and they may not even call you for an interview, right? Like for instance, if you like write a letter with a lot of mistakes, spelling mistakes or other kinds of errors, right? Yeah, and it's in a, uh, a letter for an interview or whatever, right? Then what are the chances that you're being called? Yeah, I remember I was working in a private company and somebody had a fantastic CV, right? And had done some fantastic things, right? But the CV was not, not formatted properly, right? And in fact, the person in charge over there showed me the letter and said, well, I said, please call this person because this person is good. He says, no, I'm not going to call the person because the letter is not even formatted. If you can't format a letter, you can't write a letter which appears decent, right, on paper and looks well formatted, then I don't think the person should be even called for an interview, right? Yeah. And then the question is, when you go for an interview also, uh, you might have problems, right? As for instance, if I go with my long hair today for an interview, I'm sure to face a lot of problems, right? Because... Uh, people don't like it, right? Or it's too casual or all those kind of issues, right? So I remember this one of my uh, classmates in mathematics. He went for an interview for a computer job, right? And those people insulted him quite badly, right? And of course, now with interview techniques and all that, uh, that's just to see how cool you are, right? So even if you have uh, long hair, which was the style at that point of time, right? Uh, and they shouldn't have asked him that because uh, it was for a very technical kind of job and it doesn't matter whether you've got long hair or short hair, right? Yeah, or I wouldn't think that those things are important. So the business world thinks that all these things are very important, right? So people might get at you for that, right? Uh, yeah, uh, do not. So the question is, he's also talking about how do you hold yourself? Do you hold yourself straight up or do you slouch, right? And that's something that gives you an impression of a person, right? So you might actually, that might be because today we might say it's because of lack of vitamin B12. That's why you have some, some people slouching down, right? Yeah, and not sitting erect. The other thing is maybe if you do, he's saying if you do dancing and if you dance, right, you get a balance, right? You learn how to use the muscles of your body. You get some exercise and that's why you can present yourself better. Right? Uh, you will naturally find out all this and fall into it if your attention is drawn out sufficiently to what is passing around and uh, this will be the case unless you absorb too much in books and those uh, sedentary studies which waste the marrow and consume the brain. Right? So he's saying don't be a bookworm. Right? Yeah? And he's saying uh, don't bend down on your books and still and don't think of anything else that's when he he's talking first of all about a balance right he's not saying don't study at all right he's saying be aware of the world but don't let bookishness get the better of you right because that's what we have in india even today right uh, when nehru went to the united states or yeah i think he, the United States of Britain, I don't know where, he had sent some students from India, uh, I think they were sent on scholarships, yeah, and they refused, there was a complaint over there, that well, your Indians are not good enough, right, they refused to milk the cows, right, and Nehru said, well, send them back to India, and send them back to their farms, and they'll know how to milk the cows, right, yeah, that's one. The second thing is, when we talk to IIT people, right, we think them very great over here in India, but uh, reports from outside India say that, well, these people don't know how to operate at all because they're only taught theoretical stuff, right? And I've actually 
uh, experienced this from a friend of mine who joined the IIT, right? I asked him about a radio of ours and I said, can you fix it? He said, no, 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 I don't do all that, right? Yeah. And yeah, uh, there's another, uh, another colleague of mine who was a computer engineer. Something went wrong with the office computers, right? And we asked him, you're a computer engineer, hardware and software, right? Yeah, can you fix this, right? He said, no, why don't you call an expert, right? I said, you are the expert? He said, no, we are, I'm not an expert. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to do all that, right? So uh, we begin to wonder what exactly are we for if we can't do the job that we are given, right? Yeah, you are, I think, too fond of reading as it is, right? As one means of avoiding excess, excess in this way, I would wish you to make it a rule never to read at mealtimes nor in company when there is any, even the most trivial conversation going on, nor even ever to let your eagerness to learn encroach upon your play hours. Right? So he's saying, don't let your book reading uh, infringe upon your play hours. You have to keep up trying for play. Right? Yeah? And don't let books become... It's important to read books. It's important to love books. It's important to love reading. But don't let that interfere with your life. Right? So he's, what he's actually saying is the wholeness of life, the wholeness of education. Books are but one inlet of knowledge and the pores of the mind, like those of the body, should be left open to all impressions. Right? Now, this is called the holistic. That is, you say uh, books are one way, uh, like a pose in the body, right? Yeah, so you stay talking about using that metaphor of pose in the mind, where books are important because what happens with a book is that uh, a book is giving you only one version of life, right? Yeah, and that's exactly what's happening to us in India today, right? Because we have one or two versions of things. And we take that to be the truth of everything, right? Yeah, and that's why we're so vulnerable to political forces without questioning them, right? Yeah, and of course, the condition in India is different. People don't read, right? We've not got a reading culture, right? And we go back to the French philosopher Voltaire, who says, unless you have a reading culture, you can't have a thinking culture. Right? And what we have today is we have the mobile, we have the internet, we have the WhatsApp kind of things that go on, social media, right? which take us away from reading. And that's again a huge kind of problem because we've never gotten to reading at all. Right? Yeah? Uh, from the Brahmanical past, we've been against books, right? or the, the, uh, except a small group of people right? uh, have been totally devoted to books. Right? And they're the extreme, and the other people are against books. There are still people in India who resist books, right? Yeah, resist learning, right? And we get them in our university, and in, you'll get them in your own classes, right? Yeah, they actually hate the idea of books, and I don't know why they've come here to a university, right? And of course, we must keep the idea of Voltaire in mind unless you're a reading nation, you can't be a thinking nation, right? Because when you read, you'll get different kinds of peoples and different ideas over it, right? Yeah. And of course, uh, Hazlitt is saying, look, but books are good, but they're only one dimension or one way of learning. And you should keep your mind open to all kinds of ways of learning. So he's, dancing is one of the things, right? Then listen to other people, interact with other people, talk to other people. Today we have movies, we have all these other things like the internet and all this thing. Yeah. So, it's not about saying no to them, right? Because these are different forms of learning, right? It's not that they don't help us to learn, but the, uh, the question is, if you are stuck to one thing, what happens to you, right? That's all the point that he's making, actually. I applied, uh, I applied too close to my studies soon after I was uh, of your age and hurt myself irreparably by it, yeah? irreparably, right? Whatever, uh, whatever may be the value of learning, health and good spirits are of more, right? So learning is important, but health is also important. 
good spirits are also important right so he's talking about a whole person right so one is learning then health in the body is important and the spirit or the attitude you have to other people are also equally important right so he's saying be balanced find a balance between all these things that are in all directions right because if you have only one kind of uh, orientation then the others suffer right I would have you, as I said, make yourself master French. Now he's talked about dancing. He's talking about the body. Dancing is associated with the body, but it's also associated with the position. And it's also associated with what you are as a person. Because the body is a very intimate part of the person. Right? Yeah, you can't get rid of your body and nobody will think of you as a person if you have no body. Right? Yeah? So the body is important. How you look at the body, how do you treat the body, how do you present the body, right? And how do you look after your body? That's very important, right? Yeah. And the other things he said, Latin and French. Yeah. I would have you, as I said, make yourself master of French because you might find it of use in the commerce of life and would have to learn Latin partly because I learned it myself and I would not have you without any of the advantages of sources of knowledge that I possessed. It would be a bar of separation between us and secondly because there is an atmosphere around this sort of classical ground to which that of actual life is gross and vulgar. Shout out from this garden of early sweetness we may, we may well exclaim how shall we part and wander down into a lower world to this obscure and wild how shall we breathe in an in another air, less pure, accustomed to immoral fruits. I do not think the classics so indispensable to the cultivation of your intellect as on other account, which I have seen explained elsewhere, you will have no objection to turn with me to the passage, right? And he is giving you the passage, right? Yeah. The study of the classics is less to be regarded so the idea of French is French is useful right and the classics are probably useless right but uh, I was teaching the second years uh, JK Rowling right and how she wants to learn literature and her parents say no right and then they say modern languages right French is a modern language right or a romance language which is considered a modern language right so she uh, leaves German and she goes on and does the classics, right? Yeah, so she's talking about how she becomes a writer, right? So the idea of classics, uh, we have this man called Thoreau, right? And of course, I've been very mean to say the difference between Gandhi and Thoreau is the idea of two hours of the classics every day, right? Thoreau says, whatever you do, you must read two hours of the classics every day so that your mind and your body and everything that you do is given a different kind of orientation, right? Yeah, and Thoreau is an American romantic, right? Uh, of course, Gandhi, I don't know if he believes in the classics, right? Though he takes uh, the three books along with him, the Bhagavad Gita, the Bible and the Quran, right? Yeah, so I do not know whether he looks at them as classics and I don't know whether he reads them as classics, right? Yeah, so that's a problem, right? But the idea of classics and the idea of what do the classics teach us, right? And uh, I think I said that before. Uh, when uh, when we were students, I remember Professor Uday Kumar uh, from Oxford, uh, that he, time he had just come from Oxford. He actually was te telling us, and uh, we were also having a laugh at the people who go and study classics, right? Yeah, because classics means a lot of study, right? Uh, whether you to study Sanskrit or Latin or Greek or any Persian or Arabic or whatever that is, right? Yeah, when you we are studying all that, it means that you go back to different worlds and we, uh, we actually learn all those things, right? So, it's uh, that they get jobs in banks. That's what uh, Uday said to us, right? And banks uh, find that the people who study classics are more honest and more efficient, etc. Right? Now, uh, well, I myself like the classics. That's a different story, right? But the question is, how do the classics mold us, right? Yeah, and people go back to the classics. Of course, you have uh, 
Dante, who's an Italian writer, who argues for writing in Italian la rather than Latin, right? And he writes that in uh, uh, the Vulgaris Eloquentia, right? That is the eloquent uh, vulgarity, right? So that's his work, which begins Italian writing as opposed to the classical, right? Yeah, and that's something that uh, I think uh, this man called, uh, she was much in the news, what's his name? Uh, 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 I've forgotten his name. He came here, I've met him also. He's a kind of a Sanskritist. Um, anyway, forget his name. Right, yeah, so, so you have this idea that uh, somebody has talked about the idea of Kannada writing being modeled on classical writing, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think I, I contradicted this person. I said, well, this is an idea taken from Dante, right? So uh, why should you do that, right? Like, why should you look at a classical model to write? Yeah, that's what Dante says, right? You're, even if you write in the present world, you should have a classical model. And when Hazlitt is talking about this, he's actually talking about this idea of a classical model, right? And the classics, of course, have changed. Some of them remain the same. So you have the Iliad, the Odyssey, uh, Virgil's Aeneid, and you have uh, uh, the Odes and the Epodes of Virgil and uh, Horace and all those Greek and Roman classical writers. And you also have a set of English writers like all uh, Ben Johnson and, and Shakespeare and Marlowe and Milton and all those kind of things, right? So that's the kind of uh, idea that he has, right? Of course, that changes in the 20th century when working class people go to the university in Europe. In Yeah, especially in England, you have Birmingham University where you have two interesting people, that is Stuart Hall and uh, uh, Walter, no, no, Walter Benjamin Hare, Stuart Hall and what's the other name of the guy, right? Raymond uh, 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 Williams, yeah? They actually uh, get a new curriculum up and get up this question of what is to be learned, right? Because working class kids uh, who come from working class families, they say, what is your Shakespeare, which we've already done in that letter to the teacher, right? What is Dante, what is Shakespeare, what are all these things? I don't know any of them, right? Or I've also had uh, classmates of mine who say, no, we don't like Shakespeare, right? Yeah, of course, uh, that's at the MA level and we don't accept that, right? Because when we say we don't like Shakespeare, that's a problem, right? Because you're here to study Shakespeare, whether you like it or don't, right? I also had a problem here. Uh, because Shakespeare is hard, you don't study it. Uh, so I had a student over here and I found that very funny. Uh, I didn't teach them this course, but they were doing prose. And he said, I don't like Ruskin. I said, why? Yeah, because the ideas of Ruskin are great, right? And I enjoy his prose, right? Because he's got a very rich and a very complex style of writing, right? But the student tells me, well, I, I find him too hard to read, right? So, so what is that? Now that's a bad reason for not liking uh, something. Yep. Uh, this is gone. Uh, what do I do? Is there an issue here? Uh, a, there was a, some issue over there, right? Yeah. So he's quoting poetry over here, right? That's one. And then he's also talking about the idea of uh, studying the classics, right? And he's giving you a reason for studying the classics. The study of the classics is less to be regarded as an exercise of the intellect than as a discipline of humanity, right? Yeah. Now we have to talk about that. Yeah, so he's saying, uh, one, I was watching a video somebody sent to me about Sanskrit and how you study Sanskrit and how people's cognition improves with the study of Sanskrit, right? Yeah, and I wrote back, and that's my aunt, right? So I wrote back to her and I said, well, if their cognition had improved, they should have talked about improving the cognition of all the people in the subcontinent, right? Yeah, why do they keep their cognition only to males who are upper caste? Right? Yeah? Not even upper caste. It was only Brahmin males. Okay? And maybe only some kind of Brahmins. Right? Yeah? So, uh, 
when we're talking about the idea of the classics, right? He's talking about the exercise of the mind, right? So when you read or when you read literature, uh, it's complex kind of reading, right? And that's why reading literature uh, in itself.